0: Hi, my name's Sam Breakier and welcome to Brain Spike Back. You're in the right place for your psychology technology fix because this podcast is all about it. According to save.org, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the USA of all ages, with one death occurring every 12 minutes chances are you or someone you know has been affected by suicide. In our society, we want to do all we can to help those suffering from suicidal thoughts to get the help they need. However, Identifying symptoms before an attempt is made can be difficult. In this episode, we will look at how predictive AI is being used to stop suicide before it happens. To discuss this topic, I'm joined by two guests. My first guest is an assistant professor of biomedical, informatics, medicine, and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, Dr. Colin Walsh. In addition to Dr. Walsh, I am also joined by the CEO of Behavioural Signals, a pioneer in emotion AI for speech recognition technology, Rana Gudra. And for our neuron to Something piece, we will look at a recent study analyzing emotions triggered by events such as losing a phone or someone else holding it. How are you guys doing today? How's everything?
1: Doing well. Thanks. Everything's great. Uh, thanks for connecting and thanks for the opportunity. It's uh it's a beautiful Friday morning here in uh San Francisco Bay Area.
0: Nice. Good. Excellent. Colin, how are you? How are you doing?
2: Uh, doing well as well. Thank you. Keeping busy um and out of trouble as much as we can. So <laughs> happy to happy to be here with
0: you all. Where are you? Where are you in the world at the moment?
2: In Nashville. We're based
0: in Nashville. Oh, nice. Very nice. I like Nashville. I like both those places, really. They're good. Good cities. I usually like to start the show by getting each guest to introduce themselves and a little bit about their background in the area or the topic that we're discussing. Uh, Colin, would you be able to start off by telling our listeners who you are and your work within the field of AI and predictive AI?
2: Absolutely. Uh, Again, thank you uh, for having me join you today. Uh, My name is Colin Walsh. I am an assistant professor of biomedical informatics, medicine, as well as psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And I've been at Vanderbilt for just about five years now, um, where I'm a faculty member as well as a practicing internist in primary care. So I see patients as well as think about how to design algorithms to help hopefully improve healthcare, specifically in mental and behavioral health. Uh, My research in my lab really focuses on applied predictive modeling for challenging problems in healthcare. And in 2020, um, that's behavioral and mental health. And we uh, try to apply a lot of those algorithms to populations who might be particularly vulnerable um, to bad outcomes in that space. So one of the things we're better known for is our work in suicide risk prediction
0: in order to enable prevention. Thank you. And Rana, could you do the same, please?
1: Sure, thank you. And thanks for having me here, Sam, as well. Um, My name is Rana Gujaral, and I'm the CEO of Behavioral Signals. We're a deep tech company working on some really exciting things. What we do is we deduce intelligent and actionable insights from conversations using our third gen analytic stack, which goes far beyond text analysis. So if you think about it, human communication is a complex process that depends on both the words being spoken and as well as how they're being expressed. And so what we do is we excel at distinguishing behavioral signals and speech data with our proprietary deep tech technology. We do it by capturing acoustic cues, intonations, and other interaction signals, and we discover emotions and behaviors. And we use all of that to empower our customers with predictive behavioral modeling and business insights. Uh, another way to think about what we do is, if you look at what's out there from our traditional NLP and voice interaction offerings, they're largely focus on what is being said. And what we do is we introduce the ability to understand how something is being said in addition to the what part. And we understand emotions, to do speaking styles, assess behaviors, and we use these capabilities towards a couple of different battle areas. First is to augment human-to-human interaction, which is kind of what we are going to talk about in podcast today. And we deliver a variety of new use cases and KPIs, both in voice of customer use cases, but also in health tech and robotics and in a variety of different industries. But in parallel, what we also do is we model the dynamics of human to human and apply that into the human to machine and build interactions such as emotionally and socially aware voice assistants and social robots. And uh, we're doing a lot of work in that area as well. So that's a little bit about us uh, as to what we do with behavioral signals, happy to deep dive. Awesome.
0: And I suppose before we get into talking about suicide specifically, how can AI be predictive? Like, how does this predictive AI work, and how can AI predict behavior? On it, would you be able to explain a little bit how AI is able to do this?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, I, so at the core of it, the the prediction algorithms are based on a rich set of uh, interaction attributes. Uh, so for us, for, for primarily, we're based. Uh, we're focusing on tonality, so we're not focused much uh, in terms of on what words are being spoken, but how they're being spoken and sort of the pitch and tonal variance. So we key off on pauses, speech overlaps, speaking rates, vocal variety, and then we use all of that to get a measure on the audio. And we have trained a set of models which can link these attributes with certain behavioral prediction. So for example, our engine can predict whether sales call will be successful by just analyzing the salesperson's voice for the first 10 seconds. And that first 10 seconds gives us about 70% of uh, the accuracy. But if you go into the science of it, I mean, then we're looking at behavioral signal processing and uh, behavioral and emotional analytics. And we use the core tenets of those technology to do some prediction metrics and human behavioral expression and experience are inherently multimodal and characterized by a vast individual and contextual heterogeneity. And so what we do is, in addition to processing objectively specified behavioral content in richer ways, we also automate a host of subjectively specified entities, such as those related to socioeconomic, emotional states of people. For example, how negative or frustrated a person is, politeness, engagement, etc. And then, essentially, the core tenets of a machine learning algorithm, which is, based on certain hypotheses. We're looking at certain attributes and making certain predictions, and then measuring those predictions to see how accurate those predictions are. And that's the self-learning engine that we built in. And uh, the more accurate the predictions are, the more, uh, the more strength it gets added to those attributes And uh, if the predictions are wrong, it goes off and readjusts those attributes and the weights attached to those attributes. As a result, the more data it processes, the more accurate the engine becomes. And those are the core tenets that we use to eventually predict behaviors, predict emotional state of mind. And then some of the things that we're doing now is we're predicting outcomes. So, for example, we can predict what a person will do in the near future based on what they're saying today or how they're saying something today.
0: And Colin, does that sound somewhat similar to like the research that you do? Is there an overlap there?
2: So, yeah. So as a, as a, as a general framework, I think when I try to explain this to a, a broad audience in terms of how AI might be able to get in front of a, a difficult problem, let's say it's suicide or let's say it's any behavior or really any, any outcome that we might care about, it's important, I think, to really think simply. And we want to remember at the time we're going to make a prediction, what we do and what our algorithms do, like many algorithms do, is they collect the data that is relevant to that problem. In our particular work, we look back in time, we look at the historical medical record for that individual, we collect, transform mathematically, structure the data in such a way that makes it amenable for a computer to apply the algorithm to those data. We apply the algorithms, which we've typically trained prior, often on as large a data set um, as my... uh, as my friend Rana mentioned, as large a data set as we can to really understand what those patterns might look like that will apply to the next individual. So on those data that have been cleaned, we apply the algorithm to those data. That algorithm gives us something like for example, a probability, the chances that someone will have or will not have an event. There are various flavors of how that's done. Mm-hmm. Um, that prediction was trained to typically So, in our work, we've looked at timeframes from seven days out to as far as two years out with someone's downstream risk of a suicide attempt might be using those types of data. And we apply the algorithm to those data. It makes a prediction. And then um, when we're doing our jobs properly, we very rigorously evaluate, are we getting that answer right? And the last thing I'll say on this, there's really two ways to do that we often start by looking back in time. So, you know, for example, at Vanderbilt, we had roughly 20 years of, ch- of electronic health records to look at. We looked at all 20 of those years to try to collect as many examples as we could find of suicidal behaviors that we would wanna learn from. And now we're looking forward in time. So the next time when we put our penny down to make a prediction, we're now evaluating what, as we say prospectively, forward in time to try to see, are we really predicting the thing that we care about? Or is that prediction actually useful? And then the most important thing Is this AI in context of our actual
0: clinical processes with the people who need them? Is it actually effective? Does it actually make a difference? Mm -hmm. There's two main things that really interested me about this topic is that one, first of all, I'm interested to know like how you can measure like preventative measures. Basically in the simplest way possible, I think you might have answered the question there, but I had this idea in my mind of if AI is predictive of say suicide, for example, it seems that like if you do create a, AI machine, whatever, uh, an algorithm, and then it tests someone to see if they have this kind of like a propensity, perhaps towards suicide. I suppose, how do you test that? How do you how do you first develop that without going like, oh, this person has um, a potential or high, is at high risk to commit suicide? How can you understand that they're actually going to? do it without stopping them it's hard to describe what i'm trying to say is uh and apologies i'm not really structuring it correctly but if you get someone you say oh this person's at high risk you're not really going to know about the true outcome or whether or not the prediction is accurate unless you leave them to it but then to leave them to it is obviously a huge ethical issue how do you first get past that it seems like a real chicken and egg situation <laughs> so Sam, that's one of the, um, that's one of the grand challenges of, of this
2: work in general. I'm um, not just true for suicidality, but it is so cogent for that problem space. And for that particular problem, because it's such a tragic problem. And as we know, rates of suicide are going up despite a lot of really wonderful efforts to prevent suicide and suicides are certainly being prevented day to day, but yet rates in aggregate are still going up. So one of the things I say a lot is that prediction is not the same as prevention prevention mm-hmm can be enabled by prediction, but prediction alone, the best algorithm in the world by itself, if it's not connected to people and process, won't make any difference. It's really important that we put these algorithms into the context of the places in which they're going to be used. And we try to do that to sort of speak to your question for the reasons you mentioned. One of the challenges is if we're successful, And we actually, one of my grad students recently wrote a paper, uh, Matt Leonard recently wrote a paper in the uh, Journal of American Medical Informatics Association about the fact that even if we're successfully put these algorithms into practice and people start to follow them, we're actually gonna make the problem even harder in the future from a modeling perspective because now we're moving the needle in such a way that the model, if we don't update it, will diverge. Um, But even putting that aside, broadly speaking, the gold standard of what we're trying to do is taking these algorithms, putting it in the context of a larger intervention So the prediction is one part of a very complex space. And so the providers and the patients can interact with that recommendation, a prediction, and do something about it. And to understand whether it works or not, we need to do that And the type of the world that I live in, in an academic medical center in places like, like Vanderbilt. What we try to do is in a large enough trial setting, frankly, we test an intervention with the technology against an intervention without that technology. And if we do that in the right way, looking for a long enough time on enough people who've had enough time for this potentially to happen, and we can start to tease apart whether the intervention plus technology is better than the intervention alone. So that's a pretty simple answer to your question, but it's be, for all the reasons that you mentioned, we can't necessarily do this at an n of one, um, and really necessarily trust those results, at least not today. So what we're trying to do is do that in a large enough group, such that we can get a sense that yes, this does seem to be making a difference. And we try to understand why there may be a difference.
0: And uh, Ron, I saw an interview with um, you recently, I think it was Yeah. And you mentioned that um, behavioral signals is working in this space. How what, what work is behavioral signals doing at the moment in this area?
1: Yeah, we're, we're working on a variety of different use cases. So for example, I mean, in this particular aspect, we're looking at the healthcare without empathy aspect of the healthcare is without care. But now technology, specifically AI, are emerging in different sectors of healthcare, either robots in the surgical suite, virtual assistants uh, helping medical staff to do their jobs better, or social robots for home care. I mean, voice itself is a remarkable instrument humans have to make life easier while communicating with the machines. It can deliver valuable information like how I feel, where I'm in pain, anxiety, stress, sadness, joy. And so we're using a variety of those use cases to augmenting uh, voice interactions, whether it is human to human or whether it is human to machine. In terms of specific aspects from uh, suicide prevention, we've been working with certain amazing companies that have focused on patients with depression. And so they're focused on that data set and they're looking at how do we understand depression? How do we prevent depression? And so the value add we bring to that equation is specifically helping understand those dynamics uh, between a care provider and a patient and helping the care provider get a better sense of how the patient's feeling at a given moment of time. And the core magic behind all of this is that one, human voice is a very good indicator of uh, how the human's feeling at a given moment of time, which means the emotional state of mind and the behavioral state of mind we can we can deduce that very very accurately and uh, more so than other models such as uh, the facial expressions or body language etc so the tone of voice is very very accurate so once we have deduced that then we could apply that to specific contexts and we say now that we know how you feel and irrespective of what you're saying we have a good sense of how you actually feel we can apply that to predict what actions or outcomes will uh, happen in the near future or what you're actually going to do in the near future. So then you take that and then you build specialized classifiers. So for example, when we apply that capability into uh, the typical traditional voice of customer use cases in a business context, we can predict if a debt holder is going to pay their debt or not pay their debt or if a client's going to buy or not buy by listening to that interaction but then, when you apply the similar capabilities into a doctor-patient uh, interaction between, say, a, a care provider and a and a patient who potentially or presumably is suffering from depression, then we can predict a, a propensity for suicidal behavior, and that's that's really powerful. So we're going behind the scenes, and we're we're looking and we're uh, we're analyzing those interactions, and we're giving those essential cues to to the to the care provider, to the doctor, to help them make better decisions, talking about the previous point, right? So from a preventative measure uh, aspect, I think what Colin said was uh, it, it was absolutely accurate. I mean, I really don't have much to add to that, except for the fact that prevention it can't really be done without necessarily the human element. so AI as as advanced AI is getting it's still very much a tool. And it's often erroneous and it's not completely accurate and so it's important when you're getting those signals is to sort of weave in and introduce the human element in it so that the human can take over and I think a lot of that prevention comes from having that human make that decision based on whether it is making a decision on someone's ability to pay the debt or if they're making a decision on uh, hey, potentially this patient is suicidal, so now some preventative measure needs to be taken. Uh, that's complicated. There's a lot of subjective aspects to it. I don't think AI can be relied on from a preventative measure standpoint, and that's when the human element needs to be weaved in into those interactions.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it, it works hand in hand with the, the human prevention side of things. But I have to say, I think this technology is really incredible. If anything, it sounds like the closest thing to like magic. It's almost like predicting future events. And on top of that, it's kind of like mind reading. I was thinking, you ever is there any intention of implementing it in a kind of more social sense i was thinking if you had an application like this on your phone and you you were calling your girlfriend or something you're on the phone to your girlfriend you're like are you mad at me and then um she's like no but then you get a message pop and go she is mad at you <laughs> and then or maybe like another message pops up she's going to dump you in seven days or she's going to dump you in eight days do you think you'll ever have a technology that's that accurate or that that um implemented in social
1: settings so we are doing exactly that today i mean it's deployed at many clients uh but not necessarily in a social context per se, but more towards predicting how, how a client or a customer is feeling at a moment of time. And so what our tools do is analyze the conversations behind the scenes real time as an agent uh, talking to a client and getting a read of the state of mind of the client and giving that feedback to the agent real time. So, for example, the client sounds angry or you sound angry or the client sounds disengaged or you, by the way, you just said something. And that changed the state of mind of the client from either negative to positive or positive to negative. And those things, uh, those insights, like, I mean, you'd say, like, why why do you need to do that to a human? Can't a human figure that out themselves? Presumably so, but what, a couple of things. One, uh, not everyone has the same abilities. I mean, certainly, you know, some of us have a better ability to read the state of mind than others, so it's not consistent. And second, we tune things out fairly quickly. I mean, so if you're in the day to day, I mean, if I'm really queuing off on something, what you're saying, I'm paying attention to it, I can get a better read. But if this is my 50th call in a day, I'm getting very robotic and monotonic. And so with that, um, I'm losing all those cues. So if you have an agent helper, uh, it really helps. I mean, you could apply that into a social context. You could apply that to say, hey, I just want to have a better read of what my partner is saying. We don't do that today from a business or product offering standpoint, but it's the same technology and can definitely be applied.
2: Just wanted to something you said sam resonated with me it's, it's i actually have a rule uh, about this in the in the era of i think we need to acknowledge we're in the era of, of significant hype around artificial intelligence it's really really at the peak if it's not at the peak it's hopefully just coming down from the peak of the hype cycle so i have a rule which is that if someone is, is explaining their use of artificial intelligence in a conversation to you and you can go through that conversation and replace ai with magic wand and the conversation is basically the same to be very cautious. So the algorithms are powerful. They can synthesize signals that are very difficult to glean that human beings can't necessarily do. But I think I really wanna underline um, something actually I think that Rana really nicely spoke to is that it's really in our work is very much, especially going back to suicide prevention, is about linking what humans do best to what machines do best. So machines are very good at synthesizing lots of data and. Quickly going through years and years of records and coming up with a probability that we hope is useful to decision making. But humans are good at many, many other things, just about everything else. Building rapport with an individual, understanding there are unmeasured factors. So we have a lot of data in our algorithms. Our very first paper, we're using 1,500, 2,000 predictors from electronic health records. And that's actually a subset of what's available to us. But even then, the, the look on someone's face, some of the, the vocal characteristics, as you're hearing yeah. about, um, from Rana, the um, the fact that the A patient may at that moment tell you, you know what, I lost my job or something changed with that person's family or their life. There's a new stressor or simply a family member who comes in or grabs you in the hallway. Those are the kinds of things that algorithms are not going to solve for us in the very short term. So people are really going to move it forward. What we're hoping is that these technologies can help shore up some of the gaps that exist in the space, especially in the space of suicide prevention, because the further we get in this, the more excited we get about algorithms. What we end up coming up with one, we have more questions than answers, and two, we often find the question is what is the right gap to really bridge with this algorithm is a really important question that that we and other groups are asking. So, so I do think it's important to pour a little bit of cold water on the on the fire around AI, just to make sure that we're using it in the right place and using that judiciously.
0: Right. Yeah. Definitely. It seems like it should be a tool rather than necessarily like a replacement. Yeah. But I was interested. I did see um, Colin. Your research focuses on predictive analytics applied to vulnerable populations. Are vulnerable individuals the the base line for these tests, or is your research test on a wider variety of individuals? Um, Great question. So it's really, it's tested on a very broad
2: variety of individuals. One of our, one of the other uh, rules we have is that one model rarely fits all. Even the idea that we're predicting something like, quote unquote, a suicide attempt. We, we, as we often say, numbers count, but behind every number is a story. And that story is different for different individuals. So we are, are commonly labeling something that really has a thousand different pathways to lead to an outcome that kind of gets the common label at the end. So what we have done, and we spent the last really five years doing this, what we've done over the last five years is we've built our algorithmic approach, developed it, really tried to harden it, and we've tested it on a huge variety of individuals. So, so groups that are particularly vulnerable, so children and adolescents, sadly, we're seeing rates in particular going up in those groups. And we have already proven to ourselves that the models we developed to predict suicide in adults, suicide attempt, I should be specific, in adults, does not work in adolescents the same way. So we've actually had to retrain and update our models to work differently in that group. Um, there's an extraordinary work being done in veterans who are particularly at risk as well. Algorithmic approaches for older adults is a different question. Different to social demographic groups. So we see tremendous health disparities. If you live in a city, or if you live in, the, in, in a more rural setting, those risk factors are very different. And the community uh, setting is very different. And the resources that are available to those people are very different. So so you know we care a lot about vulnerability and we care a lot about problems that are highly stigmatized and problems that lead to really tragic outcomes like loss of life and the, and the ripples of loss of life for family members and friends. Um, but so we really try to be broad in how we how we try to solve that problem. And again, we're always sort of thinking about that last mile. You know, we're always thinking about what problem might we be able to solve with the, the human beings, the people who might need these insights. How do we get those predictions to those people in a way that's context sensitive, that's time sensitive, that is understandable? You know, that's actually interpretable by those people who may not be expecting a prediction about risk of suicide attempt when they're talking to a person about a broken toe, for example. You know, we want to be really thoughtful about that. So um, so it's a long-winded answer to your question, but I think it's actually really critical in our work that we are um, somewhat broadly defined in terms of how we tackle that and how we even define vulnerability. And what we've learned is that we've actually need to kind of question our initial assumptions about what that even means. Um, you know, what defines vulnerability for a different group um, and not necessarily, uh, not necessarily anchoring too early um, or too quickly to assumptions that we're actually proving to ourselves might actually be wrong.
0: I was watching one of your lectures on the Vanderbilt website, and I did see that, that that came up. There was like certain factors you said, like even like postcode could be a signal of or indicate the likeliness of like suicide. Well, there's all these small factors which I hadn't considered. Yeah.
2: It, you know, so there's, um, <laughs> you know, another conversation we're having a lot in the community and not just in suicide prevention, but across the modeling community and really in data science and healthcare in general. You know, which code do you care about? Do you care about genetic code? Do you care about zip code? you know, do you care about both? And we actually have projects in both of those spaces. Um, with respect <laughs> to zip code, so what we actually do there, is like, think about what that means, right? My zip code doesn't tell you tell you about me necessarily, but it gives you, perhaps it gives you some insight about where I'm from, and even that is a fairly blunt measure, I'll be the first to admit. What we did with zip code is we actually use a research tool that came out of a group, the group in Wisconsin, a really nice tool that's been used in a wide variety of applications called the Area Deprivation Index, and we didn't invent that. But what it does is it maps zip code to an aggregate index, a single number index, numeric index, that's a composite of things like poverty levels, educational levels, income levels, how many people own a house, how many people own a car, things that we think may give us some sort of blunt insight into socioeconomic status, the level of zip code. So we've included in a few of our, our studies, some using algorithms in this space. And one of the things we found, for example, when we look at adults, it's important, but it's not nearly as important as when we look at it in adolescence, for example, there's no causal inference here, which means we're not telling you why that's important. I can't give you that insight. We just see that the correlation is stronger when we look at it in younger in younger adults and in adolescents than see in adults. However, it gets even more complicated. So for example, um, Davidson County is where Nashville is. And just south of us is a county called Williamson County, which is an area that is a highly affluent area where uh, that area deprivation index would be very low. But we actually see suicide rates have gone up. in that particular zip code, even though if we just took the one algorithm that looked at a, a different group of people, we might actually see the opposite pattern held true. So it's partly why, you know, we try to be cautious about how this works. And it's also the interrelationship between the factors that are actually important. So there's no one risk factor. There's no one gene that solves this problem. It's that risk factor. Let's take zip code. It's that risk factor in the context of really hundreds or sometimes thousands of other factors. And those relationships are really critical.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Actually, is was uh, strange the other day purely by chance, I saw a headline and it was a study that said that a $1 increase in a minimum wage was linked to a 3.5 to 6% fall in suicide rates. So I think that that kind of like um, chimes on what you're saying, Like even the, all these small little components of a person's life can link into something much larger, especially when it comes to something as grand and as, as serious as suicide. And we spoke about AI and how it should be considered, not necessarily the answer, but as a, a tool to help prevent suicide. But Ron, I'd be interested to know what still needs to be improved in this AI process, in your opinion?
1: Oh, tons! I mean, uh, from from our perspective, we still need a significant amount of annotated data to train reliable models. Data is a huge challenge, right? So, and by combining semi-supervised and even fully supervised fully unsupervised approaches we could train models with much fewer data and a human would be able to learn with much fewer data and that's that's the big challenge but using artificial intelligence advances with emotional intelligence had its has its own unique challenges which we particularly deal with ourselves and some of the barriers that we face during the de- development of such technologies are one you know privacy many people feel their emotions are private and concerns about violations of privacy that are genuine so that that's a huge concern uh, protective legislation will need to expand to include risk associated with ai specifically the collection storage transfer and the use of the confidential health information it is it is a massive problem accuracy I mean, ai accuracy correctly determining emotional intent will need to be confirmed i mean there's specifically in regards to system biases or errors before labeling a person as high or low emotional, because we're making judgments. And though based on those judgments, businesses are going to take actions or even care providers are going to take action. So we better be accurate because it matters. I mean, safety is a huge issue. It is essential to ensure the AI programs can appropriately respond to human users so as to not worsen their emotional state or accidentally facilitate adverse situations. So that's something which is very, very important. Responsibility. I mean, response protocols are needed on how to properly handle high-risk cases that are flagged by AI technology and what to do if the AI risk assessments differ from human expert opinions. I mean, what, what do you do there when AI is saying something and the human is saying something else? And we see this all the time and there, there are disconnects. And then lastly, I'd say there's a huge lack of understanding in general. There's a knowledge gap among key users on how AI technology fits into the whole emotional understanding of things. And so it's still very much early days. And we're scratching the surface in terms of, you know, uh, innovating on certain aspects of these experiences and use cases. But there's tremendous amount of challenges. And there's a lot that we could do to make it better.
0: And Colin, would you have anything to add on that?
2: yes, that was a, that was a nice response. I think,
0: Ronna nicely summarized a number of
2: challenges that are that are fairly broadly applicable to artificial intelligence applications. Um, a few I would uh, just add or underline a little bit further. So um so annotation, again, having a, having a data set, especially with suicide attempt is something we we care a lot about. So in our very first paper on this topic, one of the first things we did was we asked the question. There is a common uh, set of diagnostic codes that are sometimes used that really confer insight into self-injury that are used as a surrogate for a suicide attempt. That's self-injury with intent one of the first things we did was we looked at those codes. We looked at 7,790 charts. We hand-read every single one of those charts. And we validated whether a self-injury code actually showed evidence of suicidal intent for those individuals. And in those patients, in adults, and looking around 5,500 of those charts, 42% of the time, those codes had no evidence of suicidal intent. So an outcome that we can trust, a label that is actually accurate is really critical. And the annotation speaks to that a little bit. Our approach relies a ton on what we, I, I often call passively collected data, and it's not passive. These are data that are collected through routine healthcare, routine, uh, you know, seeing a primary care provider, a general practitioner being admitted to the hospital. That's where the data gets generated. That's where those data come in from. That's powerful because it doesn't require busy people to do something else that they're not already doing when we go to run our algorithms. The downside of that, however, is we have the data we have and not necessarily the data that we need. So bringing in novel data streams, linking up data that is not typically a part of a health electronic health record at a hospital, for example, is an area where we're spending a lot of our time trying to improve our approach because we see people when they come in as opposed to where they live 90 plus percent of their lives. However, as we start to move, one of the challenges then is bringing in new data. The challenge that's related to that is we start to bring in novel data streams. So one of the questions I get the most commonly is bringing in things like social media data, especially you know thinking about adolescents again, where so much of their lives are lived online. And that's true for adults now as well. Um, we have real questions around consent and the ethics of that. So what we believe in is being transparent about this. If we want to bring in new data, we want to be upfront with our patients about that and our providers about that. To say, we wanna bring in new data, how do you feel about that? We wanna do it for this purpose, how do you feel about that? So how do we educate our populace in that? How do we educate our patients? How do we educate our providers? And Rana spoke to that, and I actually, I totally agree with what he said. How do we visualize and present those results? How do we do that in a setting where providers are spending well more than half their time staring at a computer screen, clicking check boxes, putting in orders, reviewing results, reading notes, typing, simply typing and documenting huge gaps there. And now we want to add new information when I might already be looking at 200, 300, 500 pieces of information for a given encounter. And I want to give you another one. How do I contextualize that? How do I underline it when it really matters? And then the last one I'll mention, there's many more I could talk about. The last one I'll mention is how do we, how do we, how do we end up being transparent when we're wrong? So we implement this algorithm, we're we're testing this at Vanderbilt now prospectively trying to understand, is this even accurate when we look forward in time? We know out of the box that our models will be wrong with a non-zero frequency. So that means one, we'll label people at high risk who are never, even if we did nothing, are never gonna go on to have the outcome. And on the flip side, even worse, we'll label someone as low risk and a week later they come back to us or worse, they have loss of life, they die from a suicide attempt. We're gonna be wrong in both directions. And we know that even before we flip the switch. So how do we, how do we upfront with our providers about that? How are we upfront with our patients? The last thing I'll say on this, the most important thing for us is really communication. So I mentioned consent. It's also really important to think about how we communicate this and how we communicate the imperfect nature of these algorithms, because it's easy to look at them and think, you know, they are magic and they work perfectly. But people who are in this space, like Rana and I, we're going to tell you that we're the first to tell you,
0: I hope that that's not the case. Um, so that's yep. just a few of the challenges I would add to, to what Rana had already mentioned.
1: Very good.
0: It seems like it's getting there. It seems like it's it's not, not necessarily at the state where it needs to be. But at the same time, I'm very pleased to be living in a time where this technology is available and is constantly getting better. And it was interesting what you said about the social media. That really stuck out for me because I did an episode previously on the loneliness of younger generations because it, it's apparent that younger generations now feel lonelier than any other generation even like uh, older generations, and that that really stuck out for me. And social media was one of the main talking points in that that conversation. So I think linking in social media data would be really interesting. But on um, on the final topic that I w- or the final point that I wanted to make, I said, earlier I mentioned there's two points which really intrigued me on this. The first one that I mentioned, how do you test to see if it's accurate or how whether or not someone will actually go through with it but the other point is another ethical one which i was really interested in it's like what do you do if the ai algorithm says that this person is a high risk of suicide but the person declines help or the person just has no interest or they're like i'm I'm fine like that seems like a really difficult situation in the sense that you've got an algorithm telling you one thing, but then you also, you have this patient that says they're fine and they decline help. Like how can you help them, but without them being willing to receive help? Would you be able to mention that Colin and then run afterwards? Would you be able to share your thoughts?
2: Yeah. So that's a, that's a fairly, so the, the way I heard that question is a fairly well-trodden path in this space, because, you know, let's take the algorithm out of the equation. And let's say that a provider or someone has a concern that someone may be at risk of a suicidal behavior or some suicidal act in the future, in the near future, perhaps. The first question we ask is that person, part of that part of one of the challenges in mental health is the, the very nature of the illness can sometimes complicate someone's ability to make a decision around their own health. So what that means in, in the in healthcare terms, we're talking about decisional capacity. So what's done, for example, in an emergency department, even today, if someone comes in and they're clearly high risk for suicide and providers are recommending that they get treatment and they get treatment acutely they get admitted right from that emergency department for treatment and the person adamantly refuses um what is done is a capacity assessments done and typically two uh, essentially standard of care is that multiple providers typically two psychiatrists would do an evaluation of that individual and determine whether they can actually safely make that decision or not so this is a setting and i'm really glad you brought this up actually this is a setting where one of the most acute interventions possible is involuntary hospitalization in the light of day, with transparency, to providers saying, look, we are so concerned that we want to treat you and we will actually go ahead and do this in such a way that it is temporarily against your will. Hopefully treating that acute crisis, you know, treating that crisis such that that person then can again regain that decisional capacity around their own healthcare decisions. So that's something that's actually quite a well-trodden path and it's been happening for, for decades. When it comes to an algorithm, so one ethical question that's really thorny, and we haven't answered it, we've written about it, but we haven't answered it. And we're not doing this, and no one is doing this today. But you could imagine a future where an algorithm designed around something called imminent risk, risk that is so acute that it might happen tomorrow and the next week, that risk is so imminent, the algorithm recommends the highest level of intervention. And what I just said was that it's involuntary hospitalization. So an algorithm, theoretically, to protect life, may make a recommendation that suggests removing liberty interest. That's a really big deal. That's a very important problem for us to think through as a community. And we're not going to, again, do this in any one discipline. We need to partner to do that. But when it comes to algorithms, one of the challenges we're facing that's a little more more proximal, it's a little more sort of near future for us, is what do we do when an algorithm might make a recommendation that the provider doesn't agree with? So not the patient necessarily as much. The patient's obviously going to be part of the shared decision-making, we hope, except for the caveat that I mentioned around capacity. But if the idea that an algorithm says someone is, let's say, high risk or low risk, and the provider has a different assumption, our current frame of mind on that is safety first, So whichever decision is most in the light of that patient's safety is gonna be the most important thing to do. And generally speaking, because providers are seeing the individual, they can collect data, Any question they can ask and theoretically can be done. They're physically looking at the person. They can examine them. They can also collect more data if they need to right on the fly. We're really going to trust our providers. We're going to defer to our providers and their judgment, their expert opinion. What we're trying to do, as we said before, is use the tool to potentially provide insights, to be able to look through the chart to say, hey, this person had a suicide attempt five years ago, and I'm a really busy provider in an emergency department. Maybe I just missed that. So I didn't even know I was supposed to ask about it. That's the kind of gap we're trying to shore up. Because more proximally, we're worrying about an algorithm and a provider disagreeing. In that setting, we're going to trust our provider. The question you mentioned, when an algorithm says something like that around, you know, around decisional capacity, that's a little more future term for us. But it's something we're already thinking about with respect to the
1: ethics and uh, and and our decision making in that setting.
0: Mm, sounds complicated. <laughs> uh, Rana, do you have anything to add on that?
1: I, I I just have a couple of things to add to it. I mean, Colin has a very informed view on this. From our perspective, we're mostly behind the scenes. We're not directly engaging with the consumer of this technology. We're we're helping and enabling capabilities for other companies who are directly engaging with the consumers, whether it's a patient or it's a call center agent or whoever that case might be. And so for us, I think what we observe a lot of these situations and circumstances where uh, there's a difference in opinion between what AI is predicting versus what the actual consumer or the subject in mind feels that the prediction is. And in terms of like, if it's a high risk, like, I'm not a high risk or I don't feel this way. Are uh, you're saying that I'm uh, I'm feeling disengaged, but I don't feel disengaged, so you're wrong. And in these situations and circumstances, like one thing, I, I'll go back to my previous point, is that AI and all of these different tools that we're talking about, that's what they are, exactly they are, they're just a tool. And uh, there's a, there's a lot of other attributes and data that goes into making that actual assessment. And so you have to when there is that disconnect or the dis- disagreement or when you feel that someone is at imminent risk, but the patient would not heed to the advice of the system or uh, do the steps that you're taking, you could track, you could monitor, but you have to weave in the human element in there and And that's when it becomes a little bit more complicated. Some school of thoughts would be absolutely against involuntary hospitalization. They're saying, "Well, it's my life, I'm going to do whatever I want to do with it." and others would say, "No, that's the best thing that's that's what advanced society needs to do. I mean, if you know someone's at risk, you try to save them. you don't let them die and so there's this different schools of thoughts it it gets really into the complicated territory, but I think it needs to then be handled by subject matter experts, by humans, in, in conjunction with the tools at their disposal. And the, what tools do there is allows them to make informed decisions. It gives them all the data points, it gives them all those additional insights which they might not have the ability to collate because there's, there's a lot of complexity there. So that that's what I'd add there. I think, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a very complicated answer to your question it's a great question though
0: well it's a it's a complicated subject i have to say like i think this is potentially one of the most complicated topics we've had on the show not only just because of the ai side of things and i struggle to keep up at some points trying to to understand the process but also the ethics behind it like that keeps popping up and as i mentioned before mm-hmm. that's one of my main motivators to do this because it seems like such a complex mix of just technology psychology and ethics but i think you guys have really hit the nail on the head and you've really helped me understand this to a greater extent and with much greater detail so i'm more knowledgeable on the subject i still got a lot to learn but it sounds like we all have a lot to learn in this in this topic but um yeah those are all my questions for now and this is this has been really great if people do want to follow you um, Rana, do you have social media? or Do you have uh, any kind of websites that people can um, contact you with?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, first place to start would be our our company website, which is www.behavioralsignals.com. This is uh, behavioral with the U S spelling, without the U. Or you could go to my web page, which is uh, my first name .dot com, .dot com. Connect with me there. Keep in mind that we, as a company, although we're definitely focused on a lot of commercial use cases we are also very actively involved with developers with academia and so we have an active program where we make our technology available for free for academic institutions who are uh, looking to test it and apply it uh, in, in different domains and also for students and upcoming engineers who are testing the far out use cases. And we'd love to have them push boundaries based on some of the capabilities that we can offer. So you can sign up for the Oliver API on our web page and leverage that capability. Yeah, I mean, I'd say I think those are the best ways to do it. You could uh, also reach out to me on Twitter or LinkedIn and search for me uh, with my name and uh, just connect with me. I'm fairly active and happy to connect with you.
0: Awesome. Cheers. And Colin, how about yourself?
2: Uh, sure. So, uh, so day to day, I'm um, certainly keeping up with uh, my own thoughts in this space and and related spaces. Uh, C. Walsh, MD, is my Twitter handle. Um, so you're you're welcome to to find me there. Um, our lab website is www.walshscience.com. So that's one word and no punctuation. It's walshscience.com. And um, obviously, in the academic literature, <laughs> you know, you can follow us there as well. Um, and though it gets into the weeds pretty pretty quickly. So, but if anyone's interested, uh, the, I I really enjoy these types of outlets. Primarily because, we're, again, we're talking about a problem that is highly stigmatized, and just talking about it helps us fight that stigma. And I have been blown away in the last few years at the the outreach and the responses I've gotten from people I never would have expected to hear from. So we so we readily welcome anyone who might be interested to talk further to reach out to us.
0: Awesome, excellent, fellas! Thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Sam. Thanks, Rona.
1: Thank you, guys. Thank you both.
0: You run to something. Lemonade Stories reports that in a recent study, 94% of participants reported feeling troubled when they didn't have their phones with them, 80% felt jealous when someone else held their phone, and 70% expected to feel depressed, panicked, and helpless if their phone was lost or stolen. Another study found that half of participants would rather have a bone broken than a broken phone. Man, that's a tongue twister. That is our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Always great to have you. As always, you can find all our shows at sociable.co as well as Spotify, iTunes, and anywhere else where you get your podcasts, including YouTube. And you can also go to sociable.co to sign up to our newsletter. On the right-hand side, you'll see an option to add your name and email. And every Friday, you'll be updated with new episodes of the podcast, along with some great articles that we produce here at The Sociable. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.